Please stand for the reading of the word from Matthew chapter 6. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. Uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, if this is your first time with us, we are delighted to have you here. Whether you're uh, in the room or you're online, as Gretchen said, it's good uh, to be together. We're in this series called Loud, and it's, it's thinking about prayer. How, does, how do we cut through the noise of the, of the distractions in our lives and, and find ourselves nestled in the heart of God? And we've been in this series for two weeks now. And we start off by realizing that prayer doesn't depend on your character. It depends on God's character. It's not up to you to leverage your own voice to God's ears. Another way of saying this is you can't buy an audience with God. And last week we talked about that we need to work toward the late knowingness of God where presence speaks volumes. You know, there's like early knowingness, and, and some of us are always in this phase. As you meet somebody, you have, you have chit-chat, right? Like, just kind of get to know you. Hi, where are you from? Uh, if you're a student, what's your major? What do you do? Uh, and then you have that kind of middle knowingness, where you, can, you get to know their stories, and you kind of see their reactions to things, and so you understand who they are a little more clearly. And then there's late knowingness. The kind of knowingness where you can just sit together. You don't really even have to talk. Uh, you can sit through listening to a radio baseball game and, and, and you don't say more than five sentences to each other. But that time you spend is valuable time. And I gotta be honest, I, um, I, most people don't say this. I love chit-chat. Like chit-chat's my favorite thing to do because all I gotta do is ask you like three easy questions, hear your three easy answers, and then move on, right? Because let's be frank, we can't get to know everybody. We're not gonna have deep relationships with everyone. And so chit-chat is that real easy, lovely way to just like have that encounter and then go about your day. It's great, it serves this perfect purpose in our lives. But have you ever, have you ever sat down to lunch with somebody or gone out to coffee, and you don't know what happened, but 30 minutes later, you're like, you're, sh you're plumbing the depths of your life. You're sharing the deep stories, things that you don't normally say to anybody, but you're telling them how you feel about important things. Because you just plunged right from chit-chat and knowingness to like that deep presence with one another. It's okay if your prayer life is just chit-chat with God. I'm not, nobody's trying to guilt you about that. If you're just like, hey, my day was good. I hope yours was good too. Things are going well. Thanks for everything. Hang up. That's great. It's where you're at. 
But I think what we want to do at Highland, I think why we're here, is to encourage one another to begin to plumb the depths, to explore your relationship with God deeper and further. We want to work toward late knowingness, deep knowingness, where presence speaks. This week I've been having coffee with uh, Thomas Merton, and uh, I've come to the conviction that I know so little of the God whom we proclaim as Lord. When you sit down to coffee with someone else that has that same, that, that deep experience, that, that wellspring of the knowledge of God, and I realize like how shallow my own relationship with God truly is. In fact, I don't even know how to get into the room where I can get to know God in the way that Merton understood God. A few years ago, I had a friend that uh, graduated college, and she got a job in Washington, D.C., and she began to date this guy that was a staffer at the White House. And um, she got invited by him to the White House Christmas party, and he told her, like, hey, there's going to be this really great opportunity. You're going to get to meet the president and the first lady. You're going to get to shake their hands. We're going to take a picture. It's going to be really cool. You, you get to do this. And she just freaked out. Because she didn't have a dress that she could wear to go to the White House. That was her concern. Not only did she not have that dress, she couldn't afford the dress that she would need to get into that place. She was just starting out in her life. She, she couldn't go. There's no way. And I think sometimes I feel that way about God. I can't even afford the right to come anywhere near the throne room of God. Not only do I not belong, I don't even have the means to get myself to the place where I could belong. Who can interrupt the king? Who can wake the king in the middle of the night? Who dares? Tim Keller reminded us, the son of the king, the daughter of the king, Abba, I'm thirsty. Abba, I'm hungry. Abba, I'm scared. Highland, you are sons and daughters of the king. So I want to jump off today by saying there's this saying that um, it comes from uh, Lin Shi. He's a Buddhist sage uh, monk. Uh, in the ninth century, and he developed this cone, a Buddhist cone. If you don't know what that is, a cone is like a, it's a short saying that's kind of designed to make you think. It's kind of a riddle or a mystery, and you, the goal is to kind of, to, to, to contemplate, to reflect on the cone until it gives you this sense of enlightenment. And one of the cones that uh, Lin Shi is, is attributed to, it says, it goes like this, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him which isn't what you think. At least that's not how I thought that sentence should end. If you meet the Buddha on the road, worship him? Spend time with him? Uh, why kill him? And it's designed to take you to this place that, that you realize that the certainty of knowledge of a thing can replace the thing in such a way that you no longer understand it. 
Certainty of knowledge of if you meet Buddha, it may distract you from the pursuit of Buddha to the point where you no longer have relationship. And all of a sudden, that sounds a little bit like Jesus. So I want to submit today something that's going to sound wrong at first, but I want to treat it like a Christian cone. Quit looking for the thin spaces, the places that you encounter God. And in fact, if you find a thin space, maybe you should cover it with concrete. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that this church, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's saints to grasp how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Father, to that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth in love. Now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to God's power that is at work within us. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generations forever and ever. And the church says, amen. We're in Matthew chapter 6 today. If you want to turn your uh, Bible there or your phone, we're going to be looking at that. This is the story that happens right before in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. In fact, this is kind of spurred on by a request of one of those disciples that says, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is a common question that the disciples would ask their rabbi. Rabbi, how would you have us pray? How would you have us interact with God? I think it's fascinating that when Jesus begins, he doesn't start by teaching them how to pray, but how not to pray. He says, don't do it like the hypocrites, and don't do it like the pagans. Those serve as kind of two ditches in the road toward God. First he begins, he says, Don't do it like the hypocrites. Now, what you need to know is Jews in the first century, for the most part, prayed three times a day. Once in the morning, once at night, and once sometime during the day. And that prayer was reciting the Shema and then some blessings and some expressions of gratitude toward God. And, and it was kind of understood that you just, you did the prayer wherever you were. And there were some rabbis that said, well, you do the first prayer as you get up in the morning, as you, as you rise, that's when you say the Shema, and then you, you say it again at night when you're going to bed. But that middle prayer would happen just at a certain time of the day, and everybody just kind of did what they were, they stopped what they were doing, and they prayed. If you were in a field working, you stopped and you prayed. If you knew your house or at the synagogue or on the corner, wherever it was, you just kind of stopped and prayed. And because it's in a city where nearly everyone, or an area, a region where nearly everybody is Jewish, if you were in the middle of a meeting, you could just stop because it's time to stop. Somebody's phone would go off, and you'd all pray the Shema. Except it seemed like some people were kind of using this to their own benefit. At least that's how I think that Jesus is explaining this. Because it just so happened that at prayer time, somebody always found themselves at like sales in South First, where they'd have to pull their car over and everybody would see that they got out to pray. It just so happened that they just happened to be in front of Moody when everybody's coming into chapel, where they would have to stop and they would say a prayer. It just so happened that they always seemed to be in public. 
Now, it could just be that from the outside, they just happened to be those places when it was time to pray. They just happened to be on the street corner. And I got to be honest with you, from the outside, I can't tell. I cannot, you know, plumb the, 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 the motives of somebody else. I can't tell if they're seeking to be seen or if they're seeking to be known by God. I can't tell if that's the authentic expression of their worship or if that's like wanting to be seen as somebody that's deeply spiritual. I do know that in Christian settings and in Christian cultures, being seen as spiritual has its own benefits, so you might want to do that. It might be really tempting for you to do that, particularly if real, authentic spirituality is difficult. And so, I can't tell. I can't tell the student that sits in the back of Moody, their hands upraised the entire time through the entire chapel service. I can't tell if that's real devotion, authentic devotion, or if it's just hypocrisy. If we have a few conversations and I realize that's the vapid depth of your spirituality, then we can tell. But I think what Jesus is saying here is that presence and dwelling with God matters more than sacred spaces and holy hours. There's a difference between going to meet God and waiting to be found by God. And as we leave modernity and we enter into this new era, we, we call this re-enchantment. And we've talked about this before at our church, that, that the world is more open to spiritual experiences and the idea that there are uh, minds that don't have bodies, that there are spiritual forces at work in this world, and that you can go and encounter God in powerful ways. And we call those thin spaces. That's from the Irish Celtic tradition. But maybe, just maybe, going to find God and wanting to have the experience, the spiritual experience of finding God becomes more important than God's self. And so maybe when you find that thin space in the encounter with God, hold it, cherish it, but then pour concrete all over that space. Because the thin space itself might just become an idol to the true goal, purpose of prayer. Because I, I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself not to seek to be seen because it's so easy to do it. I don't trust myself not to want to be seen in the best possible light at all possible times. I don't trust myself to, to, to live that way. And so Jesus says, just wipe it all off the table. Don't pray in public. Go to your closet. Because what you're going to find in the closet is more powerful than anything you could find on the street corner. Tim Keller says it this way. The only real genuine motivation to pray or serve God is not to get something from God, but to get more of God. The only genuine motivation to pray or serve God is not to get something from God, but to get more of God. And the good news is you don't have to do it in front of others. And you can take away the question of motive. 
And then Jesus turns and says, okay, that's one ditch, but the other ditch is like, just don't go carrying on like the pagans. Don't babble is one translation. I love the word barbarian, the etymology of barbarian. I don't know if you know this. This came from the Romans when, because the, the, the people around them, what we call the pagans, didn't know um, how to speak Latin. They didn't know how to speak to the Romans. And so the languages that they spoke just sounded like funny to the Romans. And so they sounded like the people were just saying, bar, 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 bar. And so he called them barbarians. They're just mocking. He says, don't talk like the barbarians that just carry on and on and on and on. Because your father knows what you need. You know, and you see this in the story of the Old Testament. Uh, It's on Mount Caramel or, or Carmel or Carmel, depending on where you live, where Elijah has this uh, challenge with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal carry on all day long, cutting themselves, shouting, worshiping, doing everything they can. And Elijah just kind of begins to mock them, like, hey, maybe your God's asleep, or maybe he went out for a walk. Maybe you just need to wait till he comes back. And it does not matter the amount of words that those pagan priests can pile up on the altar. Nothing will bring the fire until Elijah just shows up and he says a simple prayer. He says, show them who you are. Show them that you are the true God. And then there's fire. Merton says, those who imagine that they can discover special gimmicks and put them to work for themselves usually ignore God's will and his grace. There are a lot of Christians that behave a lot more pagan than they'd like to believe in their prayer life because what they want to get out is what they want instead of God's self. I have no idea if this story is true. I had a, a person after first service came up and said, yeah, actually it is true. It's an ACU professor, so I'm going to check this out. This might just be an urban legend, but there was this class that wanted to do a psychological experiment on one of their teachers. And so what they did is they didn't pay attention to the teacher when the teacher was on the left side of the room. But if the teacher moved to the right, they would begin to pay more attention. So to the left, they'd kind of look up, look down, not pay attention, yawn, they'd get bored. The whole class was in on this. But if, they move, if you move to the right, then they would begin to take notes, they'd make eye contact, they'd be more engaged, they'd answer questions, and they just kind of did the experiment. And so the first day, the professor comes in and sets down their notes and begins teaching and learns, just kind of subconsciously, he's never really aware of it, learns that if he moves to the right, the class is more engaged. And so the semester rolls on weeks after weeks until the last week of the test or last week of the class when the professor walks in, sets down his notes on the podium, walks all the way over to the right-hand side of the room right next to the window and teaches the whole lecture from over here because this is the place where the kids are paying attention. Now, what I heard today was when the professor found out that the class was doing the experiment on on him, he was not very pleased, (laughs) Right? But there's something about just our human intuitiveness that picks up on that. There's something about that, that if the further I move here, the more people are going to engage with me. And I don't, I, I'm not even conscious of it happening, but the more I do it, the more I do it, and then I end up teaching right against the wall as closely as I can to get the engagement that I want to get. It's true in your marriage. It's true in your relationships. It's true with your family. You will do the things to get what you want. If God said, if you found out in your prayers, the more I stand in one foot, the more my prayers get heard, the more I lift up my right hand, the more prayers I get heard, the more I cross my eyes, the more prayers I get heard, you would do it because that's what you think is how it works. 
But God says, don't be like the pagans. Don't believe that your clever words or your rational arguments will get you any closer to God's heart than you would just by being simple and straightforward of dwelling in the presence of God. Merton says, we must approach our meditation realizing that grace and mercy and faith are not permanent inalienable possessions which we gain by our efforts and retained as though both by right, provided that we behave ourselves. They are constantly renewed gifts. The life of grace in our hearts is renewed from moment to moment directly and personally by God and his love for us. Another way to say this is to say that we don't see, while we see prayer as medicine, Jesus sees prayer as food. Because you take medicine when you're sick. You take medicine when you need something. But if you're not sick, you don't really, you don't need it. But Jesus sees prayer as food. It's the diet that sustains us. And here's the thing about food. Like, if you go going to travel to the thin space and you have that encounter with God, that will happen. But it's not going to happen very often in most of our lives. Most of us are going to have that one story that we hang on to for years and decades because that is the sustaining power within us. St. Teresa of Calcutta, Teresa of Calcutta, she had one moment where she experienced the voice of God telling her what to do. She spent the rest of her life praying and begging for God to speak again, and he, God did not. She had one moment of that kind of thin space experience. I have a few meals in my life that I clearly remember. They're powerful meals. First time I ate Bojo's Pizza up in Idaho Springs in Colorado. It's Colorado pizza. If you know what this is, they make really thick crust, and you put honey on the crust, and that's dessert. They don't even serve dessert there. That's what you have for dessert. The first time I went to Fogo de Chao, it's like this Brazilian steakhouse. You eat all the meat that you could possibly want to eat. Suckers are the ones that go to the salad bar first. They give you that plate, but those of us that know, you just take that plate, you hide it underneath your chair. Bring on the meat, baby. Here we go. You eat meat until you are sweating and you don't understand why it happened. I can't tell you what I had for lunch like three weeks ago. I know I ate something, but I couldn't tell you what it is. But if I hadn't had lunch three weeks ago, I don't think I'd be as healthy as I am right now. We see prayer as medicine, while Jesus sees prayer as food. And so after you have the thin space encounter, maybe you ought to pour a little concrete and go back to our closet and find the time and the space to be present with the knowing God. I mean, why do we even need to ask for things if God is omniscient? If we think the purpose of prayer is getting what we want, then why would you ask a God who already knows what you want and need? God knows what you need. In fact, God even knows what's gonna happen. So why do you even have to ask? Maybe the purpose of prayer is deeper than we ever thought it was. Because I believe and this may sound like heresy, I'm not sure. I'm going to ask Randy after tomorrow. Um, I believe what God allows in prayer is the cooperative work of kingdom. 
I think God's mission from the beginning of time till the end of time is the same, and it will never change. It is the reconciliation of all things. God is going to restore the universe back to God. And that is God's purpose in Jesus Christ. It was uh, started in the, the crucifixion. It is resolved in the resurrection. The answer is clear. But how God gets there, I think that there's a lot of ways. And I think that your prayer can drive that cooperation. I think God invites your participation in the restoration of all things. I think what God wants for you more than anything else is to join God's story in God's work. And maybe prayer is not getting what you want. Maybe prayer is asking God to fiddle with the story so that you, you can be a part. So that in the book of life where your name will be written contains that story of what you did in partnership with the God of the cosmos. I think God allows cooperative work in kingdom. And I think prayer is the way that the church becomes a part of that story. Most of us, the, problems, the problem with our lives is that the stories we live by are too small. I think the problem with most of our prayer lives is that the story we live by is too small because we don't understand who God is truly is. And you sit down with a cup of coffee in Thomas Merton and it becomes painfully clear. One last story. I had a friend uh, in high school who um, had this real sharp division in his life, in his family. Uh, before that division, his family had a lot of money. He would, they would take uh, private jets to go to vacation in Disneyland. They had a very large mansion. He was, he was incredibly wealthy. After his father went to prison for embezzlement and fraud, they were struggling to pay rent on a bedroom, uh, a basement apartment in North Denver. And everything from their life, the story before the moment and the story after that moment could not be any more different. And my friend had an older brother named Blake. And I don't know if it's Blake was just a little bit older and so he experienced the trauma of that moment differently than his brother did. But uh, Blake was very bitter about what they had lost. I mean, most of it, honestly, was he was bitter of losing his father, but he was also bitter of kind of the ease and the joy that they had in their life before it all happened. But my friend Mark, he wasn't nearly as bitter. And so he ended up at ACU a few after, years after I did. And there was this one day when we were chatting, and I kind of asked him, like, how's it going? Like, how, how did you go through this childhood? It's, it's, it's amazing that, that you still have joy, that you're not bitter. And Mark looked, turned to me, and he said, look, I'm pretty bitter. I'm just as angry about losing my dad and losing all of those things as he is. He says, the difference between me and my brother is, is I still have God. He said, what we learned after my dad went to jail is that we could lose it all, but still have God. We would have everything. We could lose it all, but if we still have God, we would have 
everything. The king of the cosmos. Who dares enter that throne room? Highland, it is the sons and daughters of the king. The sons who cry, Abba. The daughters who cry, Abba. I want to invite you to stand for our benediction and invite our prayer team forward. Our prayer team wants to be available to you. If it's a conversation that needs to happen now, a prayer, or or a cup of coffee that needs to happen 2 o'clock on Tuesday, whatever it is, they're available for you. They want to be present with you in whatever it is that you're carrying. But this week, uh, Highland, I want to give you a challenge. Uh, We have a a prayer uh, guide that we've created for this series. Uh, You can find it on Instagram. Uh, You can find it on our website at highlandchurch.org slash loud. Or you can find it in the church email that comes out every Sunday. In this uh, prayer guide, you're going to have four experiences. The first is to read a psalm. That's the prayer book of the early church. That's what uh, the early Christians used to pray. You're going to say the Lord's Prayer out loud. Uh, You're going to hear and read uh, the words of Jesus. And you're going to be challenged to do an exercise this week, a challenge to help you uh, grow in your prayer life and in deeper connection to God. My challenge for you this week is to engage the prayer guide every day. Monday through Saturday, engage the prayer guide. Do it in the morning, do it at lunch, do it at evening, but do it in your closet. Do it without needing to be seen. Take away the temptation that the right words said in the right way, if I just stand on one foot, will get God to do me what I want. You have a father that loves you so deeply. He sent his son to die. And the promise of the resurrection is the promise that you will live with God forever. So this week, be brave as you enter into this world. Be bold as you speak to truth to those you love and be filled with God's spirit. Go in peace.